Well, I was a huge Twilight Zone fan in high school and college. You guys all watched the Twilight Zone? Uh, loved, loved the Twilight Zone. Uh, and one of my favorite episodes was one called The Masks. Anybody ever see that one? That's a great one. Uh, there's this man, wealthy Jason Foster, uh, and he's dying. Uh, and he, he invites his four greedy heirs uh, to his last night on Earth. It's a Mardi Gras party. Uh, and so they have to come if they want to inherit the money. Uh, and they have to sit there and wait until he dies. And so uh, one of these heirs is a cowardly uh, hypochondriac, completely self-centered. Uh, another is a successful businessman, but he's greedy and he's unethical. Uh, another is a woman who's extremely vain. She continues to go and check her look in the mirror and see that she's uh, still beautiful. Uh, and then the, the last one is like this sadistic bully type who uh, gets off on being cruel to people and to animals. And so I don't know how these people became his heirs. You'd think he'd have other people to choose from. But anyway, these are the four heirs uh, of his estate for whatever reason. And so uh, Foster gives them all these hideous masks that they have to wear that each reflect their personalities. And he says, you have to leave these masks on until midnight or you will lose your share of the inheritance. And throughout the episode, Foster is constantly berating them about their poor character flaws and qualities. And, and their mutual hatred for each other is evident, but these heirs have to stay there and they have to listen to this abuse or else they'll forego their share of the inheritance. Well, at midnight, Foster dies as the clock strikes, strikes midnight. And these four all celebrate. Uh, the, the, the man is dead. Finally, the man is dead. Uh, and so they celebrate his death. Uh, but then as each person removes their mask, uh, they react in horror as they realize that their faces have become transformed to the appearance of the mask that Foster had given them to wear. So they became rich financially. They got all the money that they wanted, but when the world looked at them, what they would see is their true character. They would see their inside, rotten character shown on their faces. Well, in our passage today, Paul described how Christians are adopted as sons and as heirs of God. They have full rights to an inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God could certainly have put a mask on each and every one of us, right, that reflects our inner personality, the worst character flaws and qualities that we have. And, and he could choose to expose all the unrighteousness and the sin and the filth in our own life. Uh, but he doesn't do that, does he? Uh, our faces do not become hideous caricatures of the worst parts of our personalities and nor does God judge Christians by those character flaws that we have. Instead, when God looks at us, he sees only uh, the beauty and the radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, because we have placed our faith in him, God has received us as we are, despite our flaws, despite our sin. And the cost of securing our inheritance was great. Uh, not to us, to him, right? Because God had to put his own son to death, and Jesus had to die an excruciating death on the cross to pay for our sin. By grace, God has made believers uh, his children and heirs of all that belongs to him, uh, not in some way that, that, that there's this mutual disdain for each other, like in the Twilight Zone episode, but because God loves us uh, so much. And as children and as heirs, when the world looks at us, 
they should not see uh, this inner hideousness, this sin that we hide, uh, but it should see less of us and more of Christ, and that's what we want the world to see. So we've been working our way through these seven proofs in Galatians chapters 3 and 4 uh, that, that prove to the Galatians that, that the gospel, uh, that grace, uh, is by faith, and it's not received by works of the law. And so we've covered uh, the first four of these proofs already. The first is that the Galatians' experience proves that, uh, the, that the gospel, that grace is received by faith and not works because they received it by believing, not by anything that they did. The second proof was that Abraham was justified by faith long before the law, so it's impossible that the law could save uh, because Abraham was justified before the law by his faith. The third proof is that God promised salvation by a covenant, uh, and God's covenants are unbreakable. When God gave his covenant to Abraham, uh, he said, you will be saved by faith, uh, and Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The fourth proof was that the purpose of the law was not to save, but to condemn. And we saw that one last week, that the law can only condemn. It has no power to be our Savior. And this week we'll address Paul's fifth proof, uh, that those with faith are sons and heirs. So in the first part of the message that we'll preach today, in in chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, Paul gives three proofs uh, or changes that happen uh, in our relationship to God and others when he saves us. So we'll, we'll, we'll lay out those three changes that happen. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, uh, Paul illustrates the difference between uh, what we were uh, before we believed and what we are after we believed uh, using this illustration of sons and slaves in the same household. And Paul's point throughout is that we uh, are not slaves to law or to rituals. Uh, those with faith are God's sons and daughters and heirs of everything that Jesus Christ owns. So let's talk about this, our new position in Christ, uh, verses 26 to 29. For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to the promise. So we're we're looking at three changes, three things that happen because of our relationship with God when God saves us. And the first one is this, that we become sons and daughters of God. Believers have a new position in Christ. Before Christ, unbelievers were enemies of God. We were separated by our sin, and we were under the sentence of death. But now in Christ, believers become God's sons and daughters. And Paul was talking directly to these Galatian believers. He said, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. So uh, he's treating these Galatian believers not like they're unbelievers, uh, but that they're just misguided believers because they are under this false teaching of the Judaizers who are telling them you have to have Jesus and you have to keep the law and you have to be circumcised and you have to do everything else in the law of Moses to be saved. Uh, they were misguided, uh, as they, though they, had, they, they were young in their faith, and then they had uh, teachers teaching them who didn't know what the truth of the faith was either, and so Paul is collect, uh, correcting both of them. Paul reminded them that they weren't saved by keeping the law. They were saved by faith. So why would you think that salvation begins by faith and then continues 
by works. It doesn't work that way. Salvation, sanctification, our entire Christian life happens as a result of God's work in us through faith. And so the law was simply an inferior system designed to reveal these character flaws, uh, this sin in us, uh, just like the characters in the Twilight Zone episode. The mask revealed who they really were. The law reveals who we really are. It shows our sin. So if we try to be saved by keeping the law, well, then God will look at us through uh, the lens of the masks that reveal our true character. That's what happens if we want to keep the law, because the law will expose us for who we really are. But if we choose to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, when he looks at us, he will see us covered by the blood of Jesus, and he will not see our sin and our sin nature. So God will only see his son. So which one do you want? Do you want him to see your sins and your flaws and your character traits that are are, are sinful and, and result only in death? Or when he looks at you, do you want him to see the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think that should be an easy answer. And that's what God, uh, Paul is trying to show to the Galatians. You want Jesus. Uh, when he looks at you, he, he, when, when, when God looks at you, he wants, you want him to see Jesus. You don't want him to see you in all your sin. So you become a, a son. You become a daughter of Jesus Christ. Well, well, what does that mean? Well, if you weren't raised in a Christian home uh, with loving parents, this might be a hard concept for you. Uh, your earthly parents might not have reflected the love of God. Uh, and if that's your story, I'm really sorry for that. I'm really sorry that you didn't have great earthly parents. Uh, but God is not like your earthly parents. If they were bad parents, even if they were the best parents, God is better still. His love is perfect. And not only that, he's got more resources than your earthly parents could ever have. In fact, he's got more earthly resources than Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and, and Bill Gates put together, right? He's got all the resources that you could possibly want. And he lavishes us with these good gifts, including salvation and the, and the joy that comes with salvation right now. And he promises us an inheritance so great that we, you and I, could never comprehend uh, all that comes with it. And even if your parents are rich, and even if you are going to inherit under their will, uh, they might have millions to give you, but still, it's not infinite, right? And you'll have to split it with your rotten siblings, right? You're gonna have to split the money with them. Uh, but God's wealth is not material. It's spiritual and it's infinite. So, so God can give each one of his children 100% of what he has to give, right? Because his gifts are spiritual. And so we don't have to share that with anybody because God can give us 100% of what he has to give. And we get this not by keeping the law, but by faith that Jesus Christ is our savior, that he died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead so that everyone who believes in him gets this gift. This is salvation by faith. This is what Paul calls it. Uh, and here he says, uh, salvation by faith, he calls it being baptized into Christ in verse 27. Now, this is not water baptism. Let's, let's understand that water baptism does not save. We're going to have a baptism next week. And I just met with the two uh, men being baptized, and we both we, we, we talked about this. Baptism does not come, uh, or faith, uh, saving faith does not come through baptism. Saving faith is we believe that Jesus Christ died on the sins and rose from the died for our sins and rose from the dead. Baptism is simply uh, our belief that we uh, want to be obedient to Christ, who commanded us to be baptized, and we want to reflect uh, Jesus's love for others by emulating Jesus. 
And when we get baptized, we are basically symbolizing what Jesus did in his death and burial. He went under the water, or he went into the tomb, uh, and he came out of the tomb resurrected. When we're baptized, we go under the water, which symbolizes our death to the old person who we used to be. And when we, when we come up out of the water, that reflects our resurrection to a new life. So that's what water baptism is. But this is not water baptism. This is baptism by the Holy Spirit the moment in time when God saves us and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us forever. He comes to live in us forever and ever. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit unites each and every one of us in the church and makes us part of the body of Christ. So believers are baptized into Christ and then we clothe ourselves with Christ. We see that also in verse 27. Uh, this is a metaphor that Paul uses, clothing yourself with Christ. Because in Roman society, when a boy determined that uh, his son was of age, that, that he was old enough, that he was mature enough, he gave him a special toga. And this toga was called the toga virilis, which means a manly toga, an adult toga. And so this toga granted him full rights into the family, into the state. He exchanged this old toga, which showed that he was not mature yet, and now he gets this new toga virilis, and he gets all rights of family and state. And so a son, you can imagine, would wear their toga proudly, right, going from here to there, uh, with pride, partaking of all the privileges that come with owning and wearing this garment. Well, when the Galatian believers received Jesus Christ, they clothed themselves in Jesus's righteousness. And that's a garment that can never wear out. It brings full acceptance into all the rights and privileges that come with being a member of God's family. And so that's the Galatians' current position. That's our current position. So why would the Galatians, why would we, why would anybody exchange this position that we have, secure in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and go back to the law that condemns? We are already sons and daughters. Why would we go back to something less than being sons and daughters? And this is our new position in Christ. We are sons and daughters. And so that's the first change that happens. The second change is that we become united with other believers in Christ. This is verse 28. So human distinctions do not matter when believers are joined together in Christ, right? On earth, we might distinguish between black and white, male and female, uh, young or old, among the million denominations that we have uh, in the church, social status, uh, family heritage, or a million other things. I mean, look, we are different, right? None of us is the same, but God doesn't distinguish based on these differences. Uh, he sees all believers as his children, regardless of our differences, if we are in Christ. And because this is so, any distinction that we make amongst ourselves based along these lines, uh, male or female, uh, different denominations, black, white, whatever it is, is likely a sinful distinction, right? Uh, that we use to try and increase our power and authority, to try and leverage power and authority uh, against somebody who is not of our particular uh, color or gender or socioeconomic background or whatever it might happen to be. So racism is still a stain that exists in our country today, and it's an abomination before God. And so is sexism when we discriminate between genders. And so is ageism when we look down on the young or the old as though they don't have as much value as somebody perhaps in the prime of life. 
And so all of these are, are, are any kind of ism that we invent that pits blood-bought believers against other blood-bought believers is a sinful distinction that we make amongst ourselves as we try to claim superiority against somebody else based on human distinctions. If God sees us equally, how is it that we can then look at others as if they are somehow less than equal and inferior? Uh, if we do that, that's simply pride, which shows that, that we have an inflated view of ourselves. We may not realize just how sinful and how filthy we are uh, and what God had to go through to save us by the blood of Jesus. So we have to understand that, that there is no room for distinctions. But I also want to mention that, that this verse is oftentimes grossly misused uh, by some groups. Uh, this, this verse does not give approval to the LBGTQ movement, right? It does, it's not male and female don't exist to the extent that it doesn't matter if you feel like you uh, want to be male today and female tomorrow, uh, nor does it give rights that male and female can, can discard their genders and, and have relationships of the same gender. That's not what this verse teaches. And this verse is also not about the roles of men and women in the church. There are roles of men and women in the church, and God, and, uh, God writes about them uh, in other parts of the Bible. That's not what this verse is about. This verse simply teaches that men and women have equal access to God's kingdom through faith. That's what this verse says. There are no distinctions. Everyone has access to God through faith. Well, the Judaizers missed the message, right? They thought that they were somehow superior to these Galatians because they had the law of Moses. They were Jews. They were God's chosen people. And so these Judaizers are trying to make the Galatians into, Gentile, or into Jews before they could become Christians. And Paul said, no, no, no. You don't have to follow the law. That's been abolished in terms of coming to faith. Uh, you don't have to become a Jew to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's not about keeping the law. It's about faith. That's what saves. And so no Christian is superior to another Christian in God's eyes. We are all united without distinction by Jesus' blood. So the first two changes that happen when we receive Christ, we become sons of God and we become united with all other believers in Jesus Christ. And now the third distinction that Paul talks about in verse 29, this, this new change that happens to us is that we become sons or we become one of Abraham's promised seeds. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, remember, uh, Paul said that Christ is the seed of Abraham. So being in Christ makes a believer part of those promised seeds that come after Christ. We are heirs of the promise of blessing that Abraham received from God. And God fulfills his promises to Abraham every time someone is saved, whether they're Jew or whether they're Gentile. And so spiritual descendants of Abraham are those with Abraham's faith. Now, as I said during our study of Romans, uh, this does not mean that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. Uh, the church merely shares in the blessing that God promised to Israel. God is not done with the Jews. God promised in Romans 11 uh, that one day all Israel will be saved, becoming spiritual descendants, though they all are already physical descendants. So as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have a new position before God. He declares us not guilty. We are sons of God. We are one with other believers. We are spiritual seeds of Abraham. Now, the law of Moses never brought this vertical peace with God, and it never brought this horizontal peace that we have with each other. 
Only grace can do that. Only grace can forge these relationships that we have with God and with each other. Now, to illustrate, for their understanding, Paul used an analogy from everyday life. He talked about the similarities and differences between sons and slaves in the same household. So verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4 are about the Galatians and us before Christ. Here's what it says. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So we too, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary principles of the world. So here's Paul using an analogy to compare what the Galatians were before Christ to what they became after Christ. Now, if you lived back then and you entered into the house of a wealthy man, uh, you would be able to tell the difference between the 10-year-old son of the king or the the owner of the house and the 10-year-old slave. I mean, they would dress differently. Uh, People in the house would treat them with different measures of respect. But practically and functionally, the son was no different from the slave. Uh, He was under authority. He had no decision-making power. Nobody consulted him about matters of of household management. Uh, He was kept in subservience, just like the slave, until the day set by the father. Until then, he's kept by guardians and managers. Even though by his birthright, he's entitled to everything. He's the owner of everything. He just doesn't rule everything yet until he becomes of age. So what did the son and the slave have in common? Well, they're both immature. Uh, Paul's point was that these Judaizers, with their uh, brand of Mosaic law plus Jesus, faith in Jesus, uh, that was an immature way of looking at faith. They didn't understand that Christianity doesn't enslave us to the law. It frees us from the law. And so before Christ, they were like the son in the father's household. They needed to grow up to inherit what would be theirs. They needed to mature and to shed bondage to these elementary principles. Now, the Greek word for this elementary principles is the word stoikia, and it means the ABCs, uh, the basic things, the elementary principles, Uh, and so the elementary stages of religious experience even. And so for Jews, these elementary stages, these ABCs, uh, was bondage to the law. Uh, they were stuck there in bondage to the law. They couldn't move beyond uh, what the law pointed to. Paul was, uh, and for the, for the Gentiles, it was bondage to pagan r- r- uh, rituals and, and uh, uh, religions and gods. Paul was telling them, grow up, uh, leave the milk, eat solid food. Uh, don't be enslaved any longer to human thinking. Understand that you are free. And so the coming of Christ redeemed the Jewish believers from the law, and it redeemed the Gentile believers from, these, from slavery to pagan religion and superstition. And so these Galatian believers, uh, they were enslaved before the coming of Christ. But with the coming of Christ, that changed everything. So let's talk about the Galatians after Christ, verses 4 to 7. <clears throat> but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. 
Now, let's talk about the fullness of time. It's an interesting phrase. Many commentators have noted that uh, God ordained the timing of Jesus' coming to coincide with a time when the world was ready to receive it. So, for example, uh, the Romans had built a network of roads throughout the entire empire that allowed the gospel message to be carried in every direction throughout the empire. Uh, and the Greek language had become the common language of the empire. Everybody spoke it. So it was easy for transmission of the gospel message, not only because the roads were so good, but because you didn't need translators to, 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 to communicate the gospel message from one person to the other. So we see that, that this is part of what the fullness of time means. Uh, God has a plan. God is sovereign. Uh, and, and he determines when the world was ready for Jesus Christ according to his sovereign plan developed in infinity back. So God is sovereign. He has a plan. What does that mean to us? Well, when we're praying to God uh, and we're waiting for his answers, uh, it ought to comfort us that, that God does everything in his fullness of time. So if he hasn't answered our prayer yet, uh, it's either because what we're praying uh, is not part of God's plan right now, not part of his best plan, or it's not quite yet the fullness of time in which God is ready to answer. So hang in there. Uh, God says, be persistent in your prayer. Keep praying. Sometimes God will change your prayers to uh, align with what his will is. Uh, and other times he'll say, just wait a little while longer. Uh, the fullness of my time has not yet come. So in the fullness of time, uh, according to uh, God's perfect sovereignty, according to his perfect timing and plan, uh, God sent his son. He sent his son born of a woman. So think about these two phrases. God sent his son born of a human woman. And so in this little two-phrase uh, segment here, Paul stresses God's, uh, Jesus' deity and stresses his humanity. Uh, he is the God-man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man at the same time. Now, theologians use this fancy term called the hypostatic union to describe this. Uh, that's one way to say it. Another way to say it is 100% uh, God and 100% man. They mean the same thing. Uh, it's difficult for us to comprehend how this can be. That would make somebody 200%, right? And, and we understand, humanly speaking, that 100% is the limit. Uh, but the Bible teaches this consistently, 100% God, 100% man. And our lack of understanding doesn't make this truth untrue. So Jesus was born under the law. He was born into a Jewish family in the first century, right? He's born into what we would call enemy turf, right? He, he was born into enemy turf. Uh, do you remember watching all those old Chuck Norris movies? Uh, the old Chuck Norris movies about rescuing prisoners of war in Vietnam. Uh, the movies were all pretty much the same, right? Chuck Norris hears that there are uh, uh, prisoners from the Vietnam War and they're still trapped there. Uh, and so his mission uh, is to rescue them, go into enemy turf, into Vietnam, uh, rescue these, uh, Vietnam, Vietnamese, or these American prisoners in Vietnam uh, to endanger himself in every way that the prisoners were endangered, face the same obstacles they faced, uh, face the same enemies they faced, and yet <clears throat> defeat the enemies and save the prisoners of war. Now, Chuck was always successful, right? Fulfilling his mission, bringing the POWs home. But that's very much similar to what Jesus did for us. He became a man. He came to earth. He came to enemy turf. Uh, and he found people here were enslaved to sin and needing someone to rescue us. 
And so he subjected himself to the same human frailties that we have, uh, to hunger, to thirst, to weariness, to temptation, and of course, to many enemies, to many who opposed him. And yet he never sinned. And so he rescued us by facing our enemies, by defeating our enemies for us, saving us from the penalty of sin and death. By his work, he rescued us. This is why Christ came. In verse 5, there are two hina clauses. Hina is a Greek word that means so that or in order that. And so Greek grammarians call these hina clauses. They're result clauses or purpose clauses. And so the first hina clause is that Jesus was born uh, of a woman under the law so that, verse 5, he might redeem those who were under the law. So the law brought only death. Uh, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. The word redeem means to buy back. And so we were under a death sentence, but Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead so that he could buy us back from the sentence of death if we will simply place our faith in him. The second Hina clause in verse 5 is the reason why he redeemed us. He redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. So in the household, the son eventually gets freedom from his bondage when he comes of age, right? The slave never does. The slave will always be a slave. The son becomes free when he reaches age. We become free when we receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ redeemed us. He bought us for a purpose. He bought us to pay for the, the sins that we committed. He bought us from God's wrath for our sins. And he also bought us to something, not just from God's wrath, but to something which is a place in God's family. And so we're delivered from slavery to sin, uh, slavery to death, slavery to the penalty that we deserve for our sin, and God adopts us into his family and calls us sons and daughters. And Paul knew that this concept of adoption would resonate with his Galatian believers. They were part of the Roman Empire. Uh, and adoption in the Roman Empire was not like adoption is today when we adopt kids either because we can't have kids on our own or because we want to uh, rescue a child who is in need uh, or in danger. Uh, Roman adoption was often to secure an heir. Uh, they might have had children who were not competent to run the empire themselves, and so they would adopt somebody who had competence. So they would adopt adult men who weren't related to them by blood, but because uh, they had competence to handle the empire. And so we see this throughout Roman uh, Empire history. In fact, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius, all who reigned up to the point that Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, they had all been adopted. And later, Nero became the emperor after being adopted. So uh, these Galatians understood the concept of Roman adoption. Uh, and look at what happened to these adopted sons, right? They became emperors. Uh, they received all the benefits, all the glory, all the wealth that one could ever want. So adopted sons received the full rights of sonship over the emperor or, or whatever, whatever household adopted them. But adoption into the family of God brings even greater status, greater wealth, greater glory because these benefits are eternal, and we are sons of the living God, not just some Roman emperor who is going to die either by assassination or natural causes, right? Our God will never die, and we will never stop being his heirs. So this is Roman adoption, uh, and this is the metaphor that Paul is using to show uh, how great adoption into God's family is. 
So God gave us his son. In verse 6, not only did he give us the son, he also gave us the Holy Spirit to permanently indwell us as well, sealing us as members of God's family and, and giving us the right to call him Abba, a very familiar, a very personal, a very intimate term, uh, the same term that Jesus used when he talked to God. So when we're heirs of God, we're heirs forever. Uh, your earthly parents uh, could do lots of things that could jeopardize your inheritance, right? They could cut you out of the will if they get angry at you for something. Uh, the United States could experience another Great Depression, right? And, and whatever wealth your parents have could go right down the drain. It, it could disappear overnight. We could die before we inherit what, is, what we are entitled to under the will. Our parents could get divorced and remarried and somehow you know, the assets get reallocated and, and we don't get what we thought was coming to us. Uh, the point is, is that our earthly inheritance is insecure. Uh, we can lose it at any time, but our heavenly inheritance is completely secure. As I said earlier, uh, spiritual blessings can't be lost and they don't have to be split with anyone. We get 100% once our salvation is secure and nothing can stop that. And all of this comes by faith, not by keeping the law. Uh, Paul continued to remind these Galatians that the Judaizers were steering them wrong. Uh, the Galatians became sons and heirs through faith uh, in Christ, uh, through the blessings that God gives. And so uh, to, to, to think about it like this, uh, Paul makes an argument to the Galatians. He's saying to them, to boil it down to just a short paragraph, look, you Galatians, you are sons and heirs of God already. You've been adopted into his family already. You have received all the benefits that you get on earth and with greater benefits to come in the future. Uh, and it's so much greater than any earthly adoption could give you because God's family is spiritual and it's eternal. These Judaizers want you to think that you need to keep the law, that you need to become Jews before you can become Christians, but they are immature in their faith. They don't understand grace. They don't understand the purpose of the law, that Jesus came to fulfill the law for us, and that law and faith are incompatible. So don't go back to a system of law that is a regression. The law can only condemn when God has already accepted you into God's family and conferred all the benefits of being a son, a daughter, and an heir on you by his grace. So the evidence that Paul has given so far that salvation is by grace and not works is overwhelming. The Galatians' experience proved it. Abraham was justified by faith, not works. God promised salvation with an unbreakable, unconditional covenant before he gave the law. The purpose of the law was not to save, but to condemn. And those with faith are sons and daughters. And if you're a son or a daughter, you're an heir of everything. God has saved us from being enslaved to sin and its penalty, and he has freed us to love and serve him as sons and daughters and heirs of all that belongs to him. These are profound truths about what God has done for us when we believed in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So let's just finish with a couple of applications. The first is this. We ought to live by grace and not by law. To follow a set of external rules and regulations that we develop or someone else developed uh, to gain salvation is a sign of spiritual immaturity. We are free from those things. We've advanced beyond those things. Those are elemental things. We've moved on to the solid meat. We're not drinking the milk anymore. So for a child to go back to the law would be like renouncing his sonship or daughtership. 
Uh, why would anyone do that? God gives us this deep spiritual relationship with our Father and with each other, a relationship that the law could never give. And so if we're following any kind of legalistic rituals to try to gain God's favor, uh, we've reverted back to law and we don't understand grace. We've become slaves again when we were already sons and daughters. So live by grace and not by law. Second, view yourself like a son or a daughter of God. <clears throat> you may remember back in the Old Testament, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 tells the story of David and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was, a, was a Jonathan's last surviving son, and he was a cripple. Uh, and so Jonathan was David's best friend, and David asked his servants, is there anyone left uh, in the house of Saul? Saul was David, uh, Jonathan's father. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I could show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And Jonathan, or David's servants told him that there was Mephibosheth. He was still alive and he was living far away. And so David sent messengers uh, to bring Mephibosheth to him. And he thought that David was going to kill him because he was a potential threat to David's throne as one of Saul's heirs. But instead, out of love and kindness for Jonathan, uh, David said, do not be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness uh, and I will show that to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table regularly. So David took Mephibosheth into his family, not as a slave, but as a son, and gave him a full inheritance, even though he had done nothing to earn it. And Mephibosheth answers, uh, who is your servant that you should be concerned about a dead dog like me? He had a view of himself like a dead dog, right? Like he was absolutely worthless. But David restored to him everything that belonged to Saul. Now, as sinners, you and I, we are unworthy of God's grace, right? We should understand that. We are like dead dogs. But God has adopted us as sons and daughters. And I'm, I'm sure it took Mephibosheth a while to get used to eating at David's table and to being treated like a son and an heir. And it may take us a while to get used to this, but we are God's children, sons, daughters, and heirs. We are not beggars at God's table. We are sons and daughters of the living God, adopted by him as members of his household. So when we approach him, we shouldn't approach him uh, like we're you know, just hoping that he's going to throw us a scrap, right? He's our father. He loves us. He accepts us as his own child, and he wants to give us everything. So we ought to view ourselves as God views us. He views us as sons and daughters, heirs of the kingdom, owners of everything. So when we approach God, we ought to approach him like that because he loves us and wants to lavish us with gifts. And last, as sons and daughters, we should become more like Jesus. I started this sermon by talking about this Twilight, episode, Twilight Zone episode where uh, the people with the masks uh, made the faces of them uh, permanent caricatures of their personalities. And we should recognize that we are like those characters, right? We all have this internal sin, this wretchedness. Uh, we are lovers of self and we are lovers of sin. But we can change through God's power. So we should continue to learn from Jesus uh, rather than trying to, to adhere to the doctrines of the world and to human philosophies. Uh, we should try to read the Bible, uh, learn about Jesus Christ, and become more like, like him. And as we do, uh, our lives will reflect his per perfect character 
rather than our own sinful character as we become transformed into the likeness of his son. And the face that we show the world will not be uh, this hideous face uh, that reflects our worst qualities. It will reflect and radiate the love of Jesus Christ. We are children and heirs, brothers and sisters. So let's let the world see it and let's show them how they can become children and heirs too. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for the word. Lord, it is just so powerful. Uh, and when we think about oh, the, all the many things that happened when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, Lord, we, we just can't overlook this incredibly powerful truth, Lord, that we become sons and heirs in your kingdom. Uh, Lord, what a blessing it is that we will inherit everything uh, that Jesus Christ has uh, because of our faith in him. And Lord, we just thank you for the grace that you've shown us, uh, that you've provided us a way. It's through Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we who have placed our faith in him will inherit all these blessings. We thank you for these many things in Christ's precious name. Amen.